The tomb is empty. Jesus is very much alive. Now what? Is this the end of the story? Well, as songwriters have stated, no, it's just uh, the end of the beginning, really. In fact, Mark's masterful end to his gospel leads us uh, to this conclusion. Uh, the last verse, Mark 16, 8, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It can't be left there. The story continues. The Gospels are not stories intended to have an ending. The Gospels are explanations for the Gospel. So each one recorded, of course, we know decades after the Easter event took place. After reflection, after thinking about all these things, after experiencing the risen Christ in their lives. And so in every way, this sermon this morning is an opportunity for us to, to, to reflect, to go back, to have a, our spiritual uh, reflexes once again massaged from the uh, perspective of the cross itself. As you read along in the story and you come to this, uh, the crucifixion and then the, the resurrection of Christ and he is alive and, and now where do we go from here? Uh, now we are from the perspective of the cross, able, better able, to understand what we are supposed to do with the gospel. So, um, this morning I want to spend some time looking in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 31. I'll give you an opportunity to turn in your Bibles there. And as I said, um, going back in the text should sharpen our reflexes uh, at the same time as it further dulls those who refuse to believe. That's why as one songwriter, Steve Taylor of the Newsboys wrote, you know by now why the chosen are few. It's harder to believe than not to. And we'll learn in fact in the text today, impossible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. I pray, O oh God, that you would uh, strengthen our hearts with it. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we, by believing in him we might have our, our sins forgiven, a relationship with God the Father restored for all eternity. Thank you that he is a risen Savior. Thank you, Father, that there is an answer to the now what question. We now have opportunity to live for Christ, to give our lives to him and follow after him and serve him, and love him as he loves us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we dig into the text, from the perspective of now uh, having a fresh sense of what Christ has done for us in the crucifixion and the, the risen Savior, the empty tomb, from that fresh perspective of Easter, Lord, I pray that the, the meaning of who Christ is and what he has done for us and what is required of us might uh, come into full bloom in our hearts this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now some of you might be saying, hey, wait a second, it, in my Bible it doesn't really end at verse 8. It goes on, Mark 16, verse 8. It actually goes on uh, verses 9 uh, through 20. Let me just say to you that you probably have a, a notation in your Bible that says that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have this section of the scriptures. I would submit to you that it's highly unlikely. In fact, I would 
pretty well say confidently 100% uh, unlikely that Mark had anything to do with what is included in some of our Bibles here at the end. However, these are, these are excerpts that have taken, been taken from other manuscripts, other places of Scripture. So what is being said is, is accurate accounts, but it's kind of a, a patchwork whereby some editor came along uh, centuries later and and uh, many manuscripts were copied from that, but centuries later and said, you know, this doesn't seem like a good ending. The, that uh, the, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Come on, that's not the way you end a story. And so they attempted to uh, wrap the story up with a, with a tidy series of, of, of concluding events, uh, which is worth our read, but is not uh, worth our exegetical time. So uh, I don't want to deal with that. It's... Uh, it's um, uh, what I want to do is go back and pick up a few things that we didn't do because uh, I wanted to get to Easter, the Easter account, on the right date. And so uh, there's a couple of texts that I really want to get to. And uh, one section is in Mark, Mark chapter 10. And we'll have uh, basically three sermons there in Mark chapter 10. And, uh, and then we'll be to Mother's Day, Lord willing, and we'll, we'll have a sermon with respect to that. So we're at Mark 10. And... Um, you know, here, here's the, the big question sort of of today is now a, about following this risen Christ. How, how can I get in on this? What do I need to know? And the scene begins in verse 13 of Mark 10. We're going to read it in sections again today. But the scene begins in Mark 10 this way. Uh, people were bringing little kids to Jesus. Um, so let's look at the text there. We're, we're at verse 13 uh, Mark chapter 10, and we'll look at uh, 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And this is the word of God. There was a custom in, uh, the time, at the time of Jesus where, and particularly on the first birthday of the child, the mother would seek out a... Uh, uh, a well-regarded rabbi to bless their children. And evidently, here we have a, a group of, of uh, women who have brought their children. I, I don't believe that they were all just one-year-old. I think there's a, a, a range of children, and I'll explain that in a moment, who were there, who came to have Jesus bless them. And they happened to, to meet the preschool bully bouncer disciples who said, hey, you know, you're not getting through to Jesus. And uh, they actually rebuked these parents. Now, there were many demands on Jesus. In fact, this is very shortly before the, the crucifixion. So time was winding down. And there, there was lots of pressure. The pressure of the cross was looming in, in Jesus' heart. No doubt the disciples had this uh, on their heart that they should somehow insulate him from the press of the crowds. But in the text, as they rebuke the mothers and, and these children... Verse 14 may not show up in your translation, in the NIV it does not, but there's a strong contrast of word. The word but appears there. But 
when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. So um, our, our first, uh, our first uh, response to the question this morning, how can I get in on this and what do I need to know? Uh, you need to know that you need to become like a little child. That's what we're being taught here. So these women are bringing their children to Jesus and we should assume, as I said before, that there's a range of ages here, uh, likely included some who were already believers. If you look in your Bible, you'll notice in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has already taught the disciples, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. It, Seems rather odd to me that the disciples would hear him teach this and so soon would be a hindrance, a barrier, an obstacle to children getting to see Jesus. They're preventing, they're getting in the way, they're rebuking. And they're going to be an object lesson, these children are going to be an object lesson that Jesus is going to use concerning conversion. And, and so this word here uh, uh, where it says indignant in your text, but Jesus, it's a very strong, very strong contrast of was very grieved. Jesus was very, very grieved, burdened in his heart, indignant. And he gives uh, a command to his disciples and then he gives a warning to all of us. And the command is this, let them Come to me and do not hinder them. In other words, don't spiritually mess up children. Now our um, tradition here at Calvary of, of uh, doing family dedication services where moms and dads bring their children to, uh, to dedicate them to the Lord is very much sourced in Jesus' attitude and approach toward the children. Uh, what we are demonstrating, uh, of course you know that we don't believe that uh, infants are able to uh, uh, be saved by the uh, act of the ritual of dedication because uh, we, believe that, uh, we don't believe that uh, uh, children are saved by covenant but rather by confession. We believe the scriptures teach that if you confess uh, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And then you are placed in covenant with Jesus. So that's why our dedication service is um, in response to seeking to have the congregation and the church uh, set its agenda, set our agenda according and in concert with Jesus' agenda toward children. These little troopers matter to Jesus, and therefore these little troopers matter to us and must matter to us. They are a vital uh, responsibility of the congregation, of the church. We must not hinder them. We must not put anything in the way of them coming to Jesus. Ministry to children is vital and valued. Jesus sets this uh, before us, that children matter to him, and don't hinder them. Uh, some of these little believers, as he mentions, the kingdom belongs to some that belongs to, to uh, uh, such as these, verse 14, belong to such as these. Now, the context here, Jesus has just taught on the permanence of marriage. 
And, and what is the, the product and the fruit of a, of a loving marriage? But children, generally. And, and the, the teaching of Christ to remain married and, and not divorce is, is actually accentuated by what he teaches here concerning children. In Malachi 2.15, you know, why, why, uh, uh, why marriage? Why, why remain married? Why, why did God uh, put us together as one? Because he wanted godly offspring. And uh, the breakdown of a home, the separation in a home, a divorce in a home, can absolutely put a hindrance and put a spiritual barrier and an obstacle in the way of children coming to Christ. It risks children. There's also a lesson here for fathers. Fathers, Jesus teaches us that our children, what our children should mean, and the way our children are treated by us as fathers very much impacts the children in terms of how they view their heavenly father. Children have tender feelings, and they're very impressionable, and their hearts can be crushed very easily. I am so thankful to God for, for godly leaders over the years who've come into our home, uh, Lynn and my home, and have, have, uh, have encouraged our children. We've, we've had the privilege of having mission statesmen and, and other uh, gospel leaders come into our house. And they have taken special time to, to, to encourage our kids in the gospel, to encourage them to have a vision for Christ and to, to set their, their hopes and dreams on Christ and, and, and to, to establish and set their, their vocation, if God calls them, in the direction of serving Christ. And it has, it has mattered greatly in their lives. Children are very impressionable. And so we see Jesus here scooping them up in his arms and he sits them on his lap and he hugs them, it says. He, he touched them with his hands, which means he's hugging them and blessing them. <laughs> Jesus sets for us the, the, the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the king of the kingdom. One who, who demonstrates great affection toward his people. Starting with his little people. His little troopers. So that's the command, don't hinder them. And that command is very, very uh, uh, concerning to Christ. That we would apply that in our lives and in our church ministry. I, I've said this before to you, those of you serving in the ministry to children have a tremendous responsibility and a very valuable role in the kingdom of God. Mothers nurturing your children, fathers taking your children in your arms and hugging them and demonstrating to them the great affection of the Heavenly Father. Never devalue that. But he gives a warning here as well. And here's the warning. I tell you the truth, or truly, uh, when Jesus introduces a statement like this, he's putting great emphasis on it. This is a warning. Listen to this. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. <laughs> this is for us. Listen, uh, on the, on the, at the foot of the cross, after what Jesus has done for us, listen to this. Children absolutely model the heart 
of what it means to welcome the kingdom of God, to welcome Christ. Pay attention to children. There's a willingness to trust, to believe, to depend, to follow, to obey most of the time, to love. They don't think they need to earn a gift. They absolutely believe they should receive gifts. They don't bring rank to the issue. They don't bring expectations. They don't bring entitlement. They don't bring jaded baggage. They're open. All of the, all of the characteristics and nature of children is, a, is from Jesus' perspective the model that is required of the heart of everyone who will welcome the kingdom of God who will welcome the king of the kingdom into their lives. Adults need to model their behavior toward Christ after children like these. This is core. This is key gospel right here. Conversion is receiving the kingdom the way a child receives it. As a child, that's how he frames it, like a child or as a child. And unless you do, you bring your sophistication, you bring your swagger, you bring your entitlement, you ride in on your high horse. Jesus says there's no place in the kingdom for you. There's no entrance to the kingdom for you. It requires submitting trustingly to the rule and reign of of Christ without resistance and rebellion. He moves into a, the next vignette here, the next situation, which in many cases, or in many ways, is a case in point. It says in the text in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way from this incident, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a critical question. That's an important question. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Underline that in your Bible. Asterisk. It's, it's underlined and there's an asterisk in my Bible right there. You know the commandments... Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the word of God. So how can I get in on this? Following the risen Christ, what do I need to know? Well, you must become like a little child. But secondly... Your good isn't good enough. Follow Jesus. The um, statement that the young man makes or the man makes by way of introduction to Jesus is really the, what we would call the crux interpretum of the text. 
He calls, the, the, in other words, the, the key, uh, the key uh, lesson, the key uh, place in the text that helps us to understand the rest of the text. He calls Jesus good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot of things packaged up here. He calls him good teacher. Uh, most believe because he was seeking to flatter Jesus. He, he, he wanted to uh, gain an audience with him. And so he decided that that would be the best way to address him. And I think, uh, quite honestly, uh, he's pretty convinced that he's a pretty good guy himself. Good teacher, uh, good man. And that's the, the, the basis of which he's approaching this. And then he also says, what must I do? There, there must be something surely that I have to do to inherit eternal life. And that's the general understanding of human beings. I, uh, surely I have to do something, so what must I have to, what, what do I have to do? And Jesus immediately, of course, begins to uh, uh, dissect and deconstruct uh, what this man is saying. You see, uh, the man is convinced that the gold standard for eternal life is good. And he's right. But Jesus comes to a full stop statement here when he says to him, before he gets into actually answering his questions, wait, 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 just a second. I I want to address your address to me. No one is good. Why do you call me good, Jesus said. No one is good except God alone. Now, um, Jesus is establishing at this moment a critical understanding for all of us in terms of our relationship with God going forward. We know um, that Obviously, Jesus is implying and meaning that he is good as well. Jesus is good because of his association in the triune Godhead. But he is stating for us categorically here that no people are good. And we, we notice here, of course, in the text that the man is a quick learner because he immediately jumps in verse 20 to remove the... Uh, the description of the teacher by just addressing Jesus now as teacher. All these things I've kept as a boy. And perhaps he's become now just a tiny bit less confident in his own status. When Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, there are immense implications to this. It means that no one else is good. Uh, Luke Bryan happens to have a song out right now called, I Believe Most People Are Good. I'm not dissing Luke Bryan at this moment, but that's not really a good lyric. People are not good. Maybe basically, when we talk about that, we mean sort of or almost... But here's the critical reality. Only good can enter the kingdom of God. A holy God cannot allow anything less than good to enter the kingdom. As Jesus puts forth this statement that no one is good except God alone, this sets all of us 
on edge, then what are we to do? And so now Jesus proceeds to express and explain to the man why he actually isn't good. He deconstructs his entitlement attitude and his approach. Because after all, he's very proud of his resume, and we're going to see that. And Jesus won't let him go past this moment and allow him to flatter Jesus or anything of that sort because he loves him. We find that out in the text. Jesus tells people the truth because he loves them. And so we find that uh, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Which, by the way, he was busy um, doing to inherit eternal life. That's what we learn as we move through the story. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to him, keep the commandments. Remember, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not say to him, keep the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. And then Jesus takes this, what we learn is a spiritually, religiously proud guy on a masterful journey into his own art. And I want to point out to you that there are, there are two key clues to what Jesus is trying to express to this man. I'll point them out when we get there. He goes down the list of the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. In the list from Exodus of commandments, the next commandment would have been do not covet. But Jesus says... Do not defraud. He circles back to another form of the word steal. Do not fraud. And then he doubles back on what he hasn't said, which is earlier on in the text, in, in the commandment list. Honor your father and mother. Now these two things leap out at us and should catch our eye. These are huge clues of where Jesus is going with this. You see, this word defraud, as opposed to using the word covet, uh, seems maybe a, a bit easier for uh, 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 the rich man not to do. Uh, covet is, uh, being covetous is really a problem. So Jesus chooses not to dive in there immediately. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 7, 7 to 11, the dangers of covetousness. Uh, listen to how he puts it in uh, Romans 7. Uh, 7 to 11. In his own heart, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died and I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. And Paul struggles here and says, I, I realized by the law that, that covetousness was my huge problem. So Jesus decides not to go there immediately with this, this man. And so he circles back and sort of just repeats the commandment not to steal but using a different word, defraud. We'll get there in a moment. And so the response of the man is this, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And, and the emphasis on all these I've kept is, is placed in the grammar here. It's placed at the very front. It's in an emphatic placement. 
And then Jesus stares at him, it says. It's that look that Jesus right, looks right into the heart of the man and it says he loved him. He loved him at the same time as he was devastated for him. Because he was a God-fearing man, a religious man. On the surface, it appeared like he really did want eternal life. And he thinks that his good works have helped him hit the jackpot. And this is the problem with works-based entitlement. Jesus had put his finger on the problem in his life, and he had yet to see it. We greatly, you see, we, we greatly uh, over-exaggerate own, our own grading of our heart. And so Jesus says to him, however many things you have, there is one thing you lack. And by the way, you have nothing invested in heaven, obviously. He says, um, go and sell things and, and uh, you will have treasure in heaven. You have nothing invested in heaven. You have no inheritance. And the reason you have no inheritance because, is because you're not good. And there's a play on words that Jesus uses here to help him to understand where he's at. And it appears that he does understand. See, what God basically, what Jesus basically calls him now, to now is to say to him that from God's perspective, you haven't kept the commandments. The issue of defraud, you have not kept that commandment. And so he calls him to repent. That's what the text is showing us here. Repent, uh, and I'm going to show you, he, he uses this word play. In the, in the text, the word for defraud in the original sounds like this. Apostereo. And the one thing you lack, that word lack, sounds like this. Hastereo. So Jesus' wordplay is to draw this man's attention to the word defraud. Don't defraud. Apostereo. You lack. Hustereo. Something. Now Jesus is not, by the way, making... Uh, salvation, a condition of a good work. But what he is saying to him by saying, uh, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. He's asking him to repent. In other words, to demonstrate evidence of faith by turning from indulging himself to denying himself in order to follow Christ. As one writer notes, he is he is calling this man to make reparation or make restitution for defrauding the poor. The, the writer puts it this way, uh, Gundry puts it this way. He is guilty of a covetousness that defrauds the poor by stealing from them what belongs to them. So Jesus is calling him, to, he's actually simply calling him to repent and to produce the fruit of repentance, as John the Baptist called the, the religious leaders to do before. Produce fruit that accompanies repentance. In other words, 
demonstrate that you truly have faith in me, that you are truly committed to me being the king of your life. Now go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and stop defrauding. Turn from your sin and turn to me. Follow me. And Jesus will invest your dollars in eternity. Following good Jesus is the only way into the good kingdom of a good God. And you only get good when your life is hidden in Christ, in good Jesus. It says in the text, his face fell. Because he wanted the eternal, the eternal inheritance without a heavenly father. He had great wealth here and the prospect of trading it in to be able to follow Jesus was too costly. His willingness, unwillingness to part with his money, his stuff, really reveals why he acquired it in the first place. This man had a covetous heart. That was the sin of his heart, the sin of want. And his many things revealed his lack. Sadly, he had no idea who Jesus was. And that only Jesus could lead him to the very inheritance that he claimed he wanted. That's the scourge of wealth. Jesus then, it says in the text, verse 23, looks around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or friends for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now this is the word of God as well. So, what must I do? How can I get in on this risen Christ? What do I need to know? Well, you need to become like a little child. And your good isn't good enough. Follow Jesus. Thirdly, salvation is impossible. Salvation is impossible, but worth it. What do I mean? Well, from the, the disciples' perspective, they, they were onlookers to this exchange that Jesus had with this Rich, by now we learn he's a rich man. Mark resisted telling us that until the very end. And in that particular time, wealth 
and the combination of piety was, was considered um, a, a big winner. In fact, um, the disciples were thinking in their own hearts, Jesus, you're letting a good dude get away. I, I mean, this guy would have been a, an outstanding contributor, perhaps to the kingdom. What are you thinking? So Jesus gives them a response in, uh, concerning how they were feeling in their hearts. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Disciples were amazed at that. They were amazed at the, that reality. They were, in fact, discombobulated, I think is, is a better way of describing it. The, the preschool bully bouncers had now become dis, discombobulated. And so in their amazement, they, Jesus further confounds them by saying, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They could understand this illustration. A needle, a knitting needle, and a camel. And somehow a camel being squeezed through the eye of a needle. From their perspective, it's impossible. And, and, and their, their, um, their emotion now changes to a description that, that would, could correctly be described as abundantly panicked. I know your text says that they were even more amazed, but if you break down the original words here, it's, it, they were abundantly panicked, and for good reason. A, a wealthy and pious man who was considered in their day to be blessed can't enter the kingdom of God. If, it, if it's harder for that kind of a person to enter, to, it, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that kind of person to enter the kingdom of God, then who could be saved? Surely no one can be saved. And so that's their response to him. Who then can be saved? And Jesus bites on their uh, comment and says, uh, basically, nobody. With man, this is impossible. Salvation through human agency through human strength through what can I do to inherit an eternal life through doing something uh, by attempting to be as good as one can be salvation is impossible so that leaves all of us out with the uh, exception as Jesus makes here however but not with God. All things are possible with God. A human mission impossible is made possible by God. The rich man was seeking to enter the kingdom of God, was seeking to earn his inheritance, asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And thinking all along, I think I've done everything I need to do, but I just need someone to confirm it. And Jesus absolutely deconstructs any idea or notion of his salvation through his own strength, through his own good works. The rich man could not bring himself to salvation. No matter how hard he tried, no matter how many good things he did, no matter how many commandments he followed, 
almost. As it turns out, he really didn't want to have salvation because it was too great an investment, too great a cost. Jesus told him what he must do. There's nothing for you to do. Come and follow me and I will do everything. Listen, um, friend, if you are listening online today and you aren't following Christ, it's because you don't want to follow him. The invitation is open to all. Salvation is available. Jesus has already made it abundantly clear that it's not by how charitable you are, it's not by how many commandments you follow, it's not by how religious you are, it's not by what church you go to, it's not from what family you come from. It's whether or not you repent, you turn from your sin and yourself and you turn to Jesus and follow him as Lord and Savior, like a little child welcoming Trusting, believing in the rule and reign of Christ over your life as Lord and master of your life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has raised him from the dead, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Peter says to him, will, will we've left everything to follow you? Will, will, it be, will we be rewarded? Will we be compensated? We've left our homes, we've left our, 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 our property, we've left our uh, family members. By the way, you'll notice that Jesus articulates all kinds of relationships that may be required to leave for the sake of the gospel, but not your spouse. He never mentions to them their wife. He says, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields... And you will receive, he says, will you be compensated, Peter? Of course you'll be compensated. You'll receive a hundred times. I've experienced that myself. Hundreds of fathers, hundreds of mothers, hundreds of brothers, hundreds of sisters, hundreds of grandparents, grandmothers, grandfathers to our children. But Jesus also says, and persecutions. You better know if you're going to follow me that, yeah, you'll be compensated more than you can ever imagine. But there will be persecutions as well. Jesus doesn't teach any prosperity gospel. And in the age to come, eternal life. It'll be worth it, Peter. You know, Peter wondered, we don't. We're on the other side of the cross. Peter hadn't got there yet. As the Apostle Paul was reflecting on the awesomeness of what God did for us in Christ Jesus. And in answering this question, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to serve him? Will, should we assume that we will not be compensated? The Apostle Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 8 verse 32. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up. For us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8, 32. If God not sparing his own son the hardest thing possible to do for us. 
if he gave him up for us, if he was willing to pay that price for us, if he was willing to set that price tag on us and, and mark that value on us, how will he not also then, along with him, graciously give us all things for his glory and for our good, brothers and sisters? Be encouraged. Take courage. Is it worth it to serve and serve our master? It absolutely is. So Peter, it's not that you paid so much for Jesus. It's that God has paid so much for you. And he says to them, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In leaving everything, you will receive much more. And many who are last in this world, the least, will find they are first in Christ's world to come. And the first in this present world who continue to reject him will be last and shut out of the world to come. Yes, following Jesus now is and will be worth it. But know this. If salvation depended on our own efforts and goodness, no one could be saved because only God is good. Salvation is a gift of God given to us that makes it possible for us to have salvation. So follow Jesus. How would I bring all of this to a summary? I, would, I, I wrote it down this way. Those who welcome Jesus with wide-eyed wonder and trust, without conditions like a child, experience the impossible. God gives the gift of righteousness of Christ so that we, in fact, become the goodness of Jesus. The transaction that happens at salvation, beloved, is this. And those of you who don't know Christ, at salvation, we receive the righteousness of Christ. We are covered in the precious blood of Jesus so that when God looks at us, he looks at us in the goodness of Christ. No one is good except God. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. At salvation, we receive the righteousness, the goodness of Christ, which qualifies us now to inherit eternal life. That's, that is such a glorious truth. Brothers and sisters, soak in that today. How good is good enough? You have to be God good. You have to be Jesus good. And you only get that by having childlike faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ has called us to follow him and to serve him with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our soul and all of our strength. And brothers and sisters, it is worth it. What do we need to know or do for salvation? Become like a little child. Your good is not good enough. Follow Jesus. 
Salvation is impossible, but worth it through Christ who makes us worthy of our salvation through his sacrifice for us. Father, I thank you so much for this truth. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for uh, your amazing work through Jesus Christ, making it possible, O oh God, for wicked sinners and pious, religious, works-based people alike to come to faith in Jesus, to repent, to turn from the way we were living and to turn and follow Christ and to receive the gift of his righteousness which qualifies us now to have our inheritance in heaven forever. How we thank you for that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, beloved, um, prayer lines are open right now. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a concern on your heart that you uh, want to have prayed over right now, our pastors are standing by. You'll have instructions uh, on the stream to, to know what to do. Uh, please call in. If you're listening today and um, God is speaking to your heart about salvation, and uh, you have understood that you've been trying to be good on your own and you thought that you may be qualified, and you found out today that that's not how you qualify. You need to follow Christ, and you don't know really, aren't sure how to do that or what you need to do. Call in. Let us pray with you. Let us show you from God's Word how you can know and come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, to confess Him as Lord and Master of your life. And then, uh, Calvary family, you know this is uh, our offering time. So uh, let's not forget and let's not uh, give up uh, doing what we know is, uh, is uh, the, uh, the worship, part of the worship uh, fabric of our getting together is to, to thank our great God for what he's done for us and to lift up our praise to him in song and, and, and prayers and proclamation of God's word and also the, the giving uh, uh, in support of God's work around the world. And uh, knowing full well these are difficult times, but trusting in God to, uh, to provide for his work around the world. So we love you so much. It was great to see you again today, if only in my heart and my mind. Uh, but I know you're there and love you all. And uh, some thumbs up and some hearts. Let's give them all to each other and to the Lord as we go off uh, line today. God bless you all.